yet again, the, uh, this, this Ecclesiastes book is filled with interesting passages. And this one actually is almost a little bit disturbing in a sense. Um, it, it, it's, it's, well, not in a sense, it actually is. It's one of those passages of scripture that people have looked at and said, boy, if you want to know the, if you, if you want to see sort of just depression in a text, this is the place to go. But there's also a, a great deal of hope in this passage, which I hope I'll be able to bring out for you. But you know, like when, when, when we look at life, oftentimes our evaluation of our lives is that it's difficult and, and, and we have a whole list of things that we wished we did and never got around to. We can think of all the things that we desired that have been left unfulfilled. And if you really start thinking about that type of stuff, I'm willing to bet that especially if you have, you might this might resonate with you, that if you think about it long enough, you end up asking questions, a never ending, it seems like a never ending list of questions that we demand an answer from God about. And we see this happening in this text day. Eh? The, the, the author of the text, Solomon, asks these number of rhetorical questions at the end of each um, portion of, of the text that no one can answer but God. He's, he's looking around the world and saying, if this is all there is, um, what do I make of it? Is there something else? Is there something more that someone can tell me about? And this text would say, actually, yes. Or at least it starts to point there. It doesn't really, Solomon's very tricky, eh? He's trying to get us to the point where we realize what it means to really be dedicated to God and, and that dedication to God will bring our life the fulfillment that we desire from all other places. He, he almost never comes out and says it in these first, the first half of this book. And really for most of, most of, the, most of the book, in fact. And this, is, this, this passage marks the midway point through Ecclesiastes. And from here on out, it's going to be a much quicker ride. So let's take a look at the text. Um, I'm going to read through it and make some notes as we go. We'll start in verse 1. Solomon says, I have seen another evil under the sun. So a reminder, we'll, we'll pause right there, that Solomon often in this book makes this reference under the sun to try to say, to almost build a boundary in his own mind of saying, the only thing that I'm paying attention to are the things on earth. It's sort of asking this question, if all there is is what's in front of me is this physicality, then what is the meaning of it all? What, what happens? What do I do with all of these problems that I see around me? So he says, I see another evil under the sun. He's already pointed out a whole bunch of evils, but he sees another one. And this one, he says, weighs heavily on mankind. Human, this is something that just humans experience across the board. What is it? He says, God gives some people wealth and possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their heart desires, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. He says, some people get wealth and possessions. They get everything that they'd ever want, but there's this other thing that God gives us and it's the ability to enjoy those other gifts. 
And he doesn't give those to some people. And in that sense, their wealth and their possessions and everything that they, that they want in life actually becomes a bit of a curse because they can't enjoy them. God gives us not just good gifts, but he gives us the ability to enjoy those good gifts. It's why having more and more and more actually doesn't bring us joy in the end. It might bring us momentary happiness, but it doesn't bring joy, especially not the kind of joy that God's grace brings to our lives, that fills us up and overflows out into the rest of our living. It's because we can get more and more and more, but oftentimes if we get more and more and more and more, God doesn't give us the ability to enjoy it. Because we weren't designed to find enjoyment in more and more and more. We were, we were designed by God to find our enjoyment, our fulfillment, our satisfaction in him. And so being empowered to enjoy gifts actually really happens when we enjoy the giver more than the gifts. If we say, thank you, Lord, for these things that you've given me and that gratitude to God actually overflows to be able to be, uh, to show our gratefulness to others and to share those things that God has given us with them in service to them. And so Solomon looks at the world and says, well, this is evil. This is, this is something that really weighs heavily on mankind because some people can't enjoy these gifts that God gives them. He doesn't, he doesn't grant them the ability to enjoy them. And instead other people do as well. And even more than this, he actually, he dives deeper into this, into this thought process. He says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity uh, and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And this is, this is, this is a, a really confronting passage, right? What he's saying is that you know, if you had a hundred children and you lived a long life and you had the riches to be able to provide for that massive family, by the ancient Near Eastern standards, by the, the standards of the ancient world, you were hashtag blessed by God. Like 100%, you were blessed. However, having not no ability to enjoy those things, and especially being left unburied by the ancient Near Eastern standards, is hashtag cursed. They would have looked at his life as he lived it and said, boy, you are blessed with all these things, but then looked at his death and said, oh, you are cursed by God for some reason. There's something about how you lived that actually wasn't as blessed as we thought. And it is to say that we look for blessing in the wrong things. That the, the, the things that we look for to say whether we're blessed or not are not the things that God looks for. The thing that God maybe looks for most is a starting point of fear. And we've, we saw this at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But you know what? The fear of the Lord is also the source of our satisfaction in God. That is, if we honor God as God, we'll find deeper, a deeper sense of satisfaction in him 
which will all enable us to enjoy every good gift that he gives, big or small, um, we'll be able to enjoy it and then share that enjoyment with others. But we could have hundreds of children, we could live long lives, we could have riches beyond our wildest dreams, and the world could look at us and say, blessed. But God doesn't give us fulfillment, they bring us no pleasure, and maybe at the end of our lives we're left unburied, and all those things show us that we, that we weren't as blessed as we thought. The world looks at health and wealth and prosperity and says, boy, you're blessed. God looks at our orthocardia, our orthodoxy, and our orthopraxy. That is, he, he, God looks for a right heart, right beliefs, and right actions. And by those measures, he calls us blessed. If we have a right heart before him, if our, if our, if our heart is directed towards him, if our beliefs are directed towards him, and our actions are directed towards him, that is a truly blessed life. And the question being, then for us, is that is, is God at the center of our life? Is everything that our heart desires and everything that we think about and every action that we do directed towards God and living into God's kingdom? Is God, the, is, is God on the throne of our hearts? Is Jesus sitting on the throne of our hearts being able to direct which way we go and what we think and, and believe and and the whole thing, and are we, being, be, are we being transformed by the renewal of our minds in Christ Jesus? If not, Solomon says, a stillborn child is better off than us. Now why? It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do all go to the same place. The stillborn child has more rest. And the thing that Solomon's really getting at is the thing that he's is, is hitting on all the themes that he's talked about so far. That child isn't tempted, doesn't experience evil, isn't crushed by the toil of the earth, isn't filled with guilt, or pride or envy its name is shrouded in darkness that is even if it has a name its personality is 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 left to the unknown and that baby has more rest than someone with health wealth and prosperity because they are freed from the trappings of health wealth and prosperity and instead all go to the same place that baby gets to go into the presence of God, having not experienced the evil of this world. There's a, there's a great hope for in that for especially mothers who have have given birth prematurely. That there's a there's a hope here that even in in the midst of the suffering of that experience, we can still know where that child is in the in the hands of in the hands of God. So what Solomon's telling us, he's saying, if you can't enjoy your life, and if you can't, you know, 
if you can't enjoy your life, even if you have everything possible to that would enable you to enjoy life, if you had all the wealth and all the possessions, all of the clout in the world at your disposal to be able to do those things that you want to do and you still wouldn't be able to enjoy life, he's saying it's it would probably be better for you to have been still born, but maybe if, and this is important, there he gives us this, this, this sort of maybe if type of thought process to try to get us to really dig deeper into the underlying um, issue of our hearts related to this, that we might actually say, you know what, no, 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 I wouldn't have been better off and I, I know how to fix this. I know, I know that maybe I have gifts that God has given me at my disposal. And if I just tinker with my life in certain ways, then I'll be able to experience it more fully. Then I'll be able to, if I just had a little bit more wealth, then I would be able to, if I just had a bit more prosperity, then I'd be able to, if my health was just a little bit better, then I'd be able to fulfill the desires of my heart. We fall into these trappings. And Solomon says, well, I don't think that's actually how that works. So he gives us all these maybe if type of statements to try to dig deeper into it. Uh, I'm going to read verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? And what do poor, the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eyes see than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So he's sort of like, well, maybe if we get rid of our appetites, if we just get rid of our desires. But he says, essentially, they're always going to come back and they always come back stronger. Our toil is for our mouth, but our appetite is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. If we try to get rid of it, it just comes right back. Well, what if I gain all the knowledge that I can to be able to live wisely in the world? Uh, you know, what if I get rid of my possessions? And what if I do everything that I can to be rid of the shackles of health, wealth, and prosperity? on my own, well, Solomon says, this is meaningless. <laughs> like there's, everyone ends up in the same place. So what you are doing is meaningless. It's not going to end up in the, it's not going to end the way you think. You think you're just going to push beyond the, the desires of your heart. but it's just not, it's just not going to go the way you think. So maybe if we get rid of our appetite, it's not going to work. It's just going to come back stronger. Maybe if we gain all of the knowledge and wisdom, well, that's just going to cause other types of problems. Maybe if we get rid of our possessions, well, no, that's not going to work either. Riches and wisdom and poverty, all of that will not help us run away from the fact that our desires are always going to lead us towards unfulfillment, to feeling dissatisfaction in our lives. 
and neither can wandering from, t from trying to find satisfaction in one thing to another. Our desires are constantly traveling, but never arriving. So we might even say, well, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just move my desires around. Now I'll find it in food and then drink and then technology, and then relationships, and then whatever maybe catches my eye. He says this too is meaningless, this roving of the appetite. It's a chasing after the wind. Our desires are constantly traveling, never fully arriving. And it's meaningless. It's not going to bring us to the place that we want it to go. And so he concludes with this, this, uh, this last couple of verses. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For those, for who knows, excuse me, what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? These verses in particular are almost the exact midway point, but it, within them is the exact midway point through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon's trying to find a new way of telling us the same thing that he has said over and over and over again. There is nothing new under the sun. This is all meaningless and there's nothing new. And he, he, he does it by reflecting on Genesis 1 through 3. He says everything that exists has already been named. And in Genesis, the animals in particular are all named by Adam uh, as, as part of the creation story. All, all, all of creation is named by him. But then he says, and you know, humans are what they are, and that's already known. And why? Well, he said before, that, that humans are just dust and from from dust we came to dust we shall return and Adam and dust in Hebrew are semantically linked that they're 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 a same they're, they're they're very similar words because Adam came from and returns to the dust of the earth so aka he's saying you know humans have always been this way so why are you fighting God over it Humans have always wanted to, to focus on wealth and possessions and honor. And we've always just not focused on God in the way that God designed us to. And to get frustrated then at God is, 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 is just not proper in a sense. So it's, it's, it, you, you want to use more and more words and try to contend with someone who is stronger, but the more words you use, the less the meaning and how is that going to profit you? We see this in uh, books like Job, where Job argues with God and then is driven into repentance for the argument. Arguing with God almost always is followed by both a, a rebuke and regret, a rebuke from God and regret on the part of the one arguing. And we see Paul talking about this in Romans 9. How, who are you to answer back to God? This stuff that we're talking about, this trying to find fulfillment and wealth, health, and prosperity, and trying to, trying to run away from, from our appetites and trying to run away from, from really the problems of the world by filling it with 
wisdom or riches or, or, or poverty in some, in some cases, or moving between food and drink to technology to relationships. We try to just allow our desires to move us around wherever we may feel like they're leading us. And then we get angry at God for the repercussions of doing that. And Ecclesiastes is saying, no, no, you don't get to do that. This is, this is part of the human condition and it always has been and it shouldn't surprise us. When we start doing that and then God comes in and says, that's not how I designed for you to live. And so he ends up asking these bunch of questions. Who knows what, a, what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Who can tell them what will happen? Who knows what's good for them? Questions that no human is able to answer. But we do have a God who is able to answer them. We have a God who designed us, who created us for relationship with him. And we broke that relationship and he went to the great extent of sending his son as a sacrifice in our place to be rid of our sins so we can have right relationship with him again. There's a God who answers these questions. And if we take God at his word, we know how they are answered. But if we're nihilistic, if we look at the world and say there's no real meaning, there's no purpose, everything is just vanity, we're here and then we're dead, and that's it. Nothing in the world matters. There's no point to anything. And if you let, if you let that sink in, it's actually really quite depressing. Um, and the implications of it are shocking if you, if you really follow it through. But if Jesus lived on this earth historically as a person, if he died, if he rose again, if heaven is real, and if God's kingdom really is breaking into this earth, God's relational reign over all of creation, then everything matters. Every decision that we make, every action that we do is either building God's, pushing God's kingdom forth and bringing it to bear on the relationships of our lives, or it's not. Either we're getting prepared to enter the life of heaven, or we are moving ourselves away from that life. So we may not fully experience the, the full measure of joy that God would have for us now. But part of what this passage is trying to point us to is that we will receive that full measure of joy when we are crowned in glory in heaven. And thanks be to God for that. This, friends, is what communion is all about. It's trying to remind us of our grounding in grace so that we don't have to find our fulfillment and satisfaction in the blessings that, this, that the world says these are the things that mark a blessed life. But we can find our fulfillment and satisfaction in the things that God says is true blessing, having a right heart before him, having right beliefs before him, and acting rightly before him. And it starts, it's, it's all comes back to the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you have your bread and your juice? I hope so, because we are going to take communion together now. When we gather around God's table and enjoy communion, 
we're really doing something that's a, that's an a, like almost the ultimate act of thanksgiving. We're thanking God for all that he has done for us, especially for our salvation. You know, in the Gospels, it talks about Jesus giving thanks at the Last Supper. Multiple times, as he takes the elements and passes them around, he gives thanks for them. He, he thanks God. And this wasn't the kind of thanks that we do around a Thanksgiving table. Like, what's the one thing that you're thankful for this year? And everyone awkwardly tries to think of something... Um, that's not, that's not what it's about. The thanks of Jesus at that table is all centered on God's grace. And for us, it's centered on God's grace through Christ for us in our symbolic feasting on his body and his blood that has been broken and shed for our sins. And so we thank God today by attending to the Lord's table and as we do that, we're reminded about what this table is all about. As we partake the bread, as we eat the bread, we're saying, Lord, permeate our lives. And when we drink of the cup, we're saying, Lord, transfuse our, uh, transfuse our sin-filled blood out of our body and replace it with yours that gives new life. Communion declares that Christ is in us and that we are his to use however he sees fit to the glory and praise of his name alone. Friends, this is the body of Christ that's been broken for you. Take and eat. And this is the cup of the new covenant in his blood shed for our sins that we may have life and have it to the full. Take and drink. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that at this table, that you invite us to partake in your life and that you transform our lives by, by grace as we do. Give us a sense of that grace through these elements this morning, Father. And make us a people of thanksgiving gathered around your table who are willing to go to the ends of the earth to bring glory to you and to honor your name above all other names, including our own. For those places, maybe, Father, where we have focused on, our, on health, wealth, and prosperity, I ask that you would replace those things with right hearts, right beliefs, and right actions, so that we may glorify you in all that we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.